I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1 today. The title of our message is To the Church. To the Church. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1. I hope you'll open up in your copy of God's Word to that verse of Scripture. If I were to ask all of you to write a letter to your grandmother... Uh, all those letters would contain lots of different things. You would say different things to your grandmother, depending on your uh, situation and relationship with, with her. But there would be some things that probably all of those letters would have in common. Uh, for instance, uh, your letter would start by saying something like, Dear Grandma, or whatever you call your grandmother, Dear Grandma. Then you would move into the body of that letter, and there you would uh, tell her whatever it is that you're going to tell her in the letter, and then you would close that letter by uh, probably saying something like, uh, love your granddaughter, or love your grandson, or love, and you would put your name there after the word love. And so all of those letters that you would write, though they would be different, they'd all have a similar structure. Well, just like we have a certain structure to our letters, people in the first century had a certain structure to the way their letters were written. Many of the books of the New Testament are letters written to either groups of Christians uh, or individuals. And, and at least 13 of these letters in the New Testament are written by the Apostle Paul. Today we're going to begin studying through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica by looking at the opening greeting found in chapter 1, verse 1. And so if you will, follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this one verse. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Would you pray with me? Father, as we spend a few moments today uh, examining this verse of Scripture, Father, would you just remind us that every word of Scripture is breathed out by you? Father, every word is important. Uh, Father, it is your word to us, revealing to us who you are, revealing to us um, who, who we are, Father, and, and how we are to live Lord, your word tells us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. Your word points us to Jesus Christ uh, as our Redeemer and Deliverer. And uh, Father, so we just pray that in these few moments, Lord, um, that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Father, that you would be glorified and that our hearts would be, uh, would be changed uh, to become uh, more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, be with us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, unlike our opening greetings, which are really short, dear so-and-so, the greetings of letters in the first century had several parts to them. Uh, the writer would begin by stating who the letter was from, and then the writer would say who the letter was going to, who the recipients were, and then the writer would give some sort of greeting, and then oftentimes there would be a, a, a thanksgiving, some word of thanks on behalf of, of the writer. Um, and so uh, here we see that exact thing happening in the opening to 1 Thessalonians. The writer, the recipient, and the greetings are in verse 1, and then a word of thanks we find in verses 2 and 3. 
And this opening in 1 Thessalonians is the shortest opening in all of Paul's New Testament letters. But just because it's short doesn't mean we should just skip over it. We shouldn't let the brevity of this greeting and this opening lead us to just blow past it in order to get to the good stuff in this letter. Now, no doubt, there is a lot of good stuff here in 1 Thessalonians, and I'm looking forward to walking through this book of the Bible with each of you. But I think there is also some good stuff right here in this opening in verse 1. My prayer for today is that we will walk away from studying the first verse of this letter more committed to the church and more confident in what we believe about God and about salvation, and about what unites us together as the church, as the people of God. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I get a letter, one of the first things I do is I look and see who it's from, which in the way that we write letters means I have to go all the way to the end. I want to see who's writing the letter because that's going to determine how I read the letter. For instance, I'm going to read a letter from my mom different than I'm going to read a letter from my wife. Or uh, another example would be I would I'm going to read a letter from my boss different than differently than I'm going to read a letter from, say, a childhood uh, friend that we've been friends for years and years and years. And so it matters who a letter is from this letter, we're told, is from Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. Paul is an apostle of Jesus. And he, he's not one of the original 12. He was called at a later time by Jesus. He started out as a Jew. He was very devout in his Judaism. He, he began to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, but then, one day on his way to a city called Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him. The risen Lord appeared to, uh, to, to Saul. That was his name then. And, uh, and, and, and he, 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 gave, he gave his his life over to Christ. He surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that day, Paul was saved and rescued from his sin. And from that day on, he, uh, he spent his life to the very end going to other people in other places, other countries, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who had never heard so that they too could be rescued from their sin. And that's Paul. We also have this man here named Silvanus. Well, who is Silvanus? Silvanus is one of Paul's traveling companions. And you probably know him better by the name Silas. In the book of Acts, Luke, who's the uh, human author of Acts, refers to this particular man as Silas. But Paul always refers to him by his Roman name, which is Silvanus. Uh, we learn from the book of Acts that Silas was a trustworthy man. He was entrusted in Acts 15 with the letter from the Jerusalem council that was sent to the church at Antioch. We also learn that he uh, joined Paul on Paul's second missionary journey. Um, in Acts 16, we find Silas with Paul having been arrested for proclaiming the gospel having been beaten, thrown into the Philippian uh, jail there, and there in the stocks they are singing hymns together to God. That's this Silvanus. That's who this is. And then we have this third man, Timothy. Timothy was half Greek and half Jew by birth. His father was a Greek and his mother was a Jewish Christian. He was from the region of Galatia. And Timothy joined Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary journey. And through the years... Timothy and Paul uh, fostered a very close relationship. Uh, Timothy was like a, a son in the faith 
to the Apostle Paul. They stayed close all the way until uh, the time of Paul's death. Now, we need to ask this question. What is the connection between these three men and the Thessalonians? We learn in Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silas traveled to Thessalonica after they left the city of Philippi. And while in Thessalonica, they shared the gospel and some of the people believe in Jesus. Now, it's not clear um, whether Timothy was with them at that time, but it is clear from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 2 that Timothy has spent time with the Thessalonian believers. And so what we can gather from 1 Thessalonians and from uh, Luke's account in Acts chapter 17 um, is, is that these, uh, these three men have a very special connection to the Thessalonian believers. And these are the men who brought the gospel to them, who helped them believe in Jesus for salvation, who have continued to provide encouragement for them and teaching so that they would grow as disciples of Jesus. So now that we know a little bit about who the letter is from, Let's move to the recipients of the letter, and then we'll close with the greeting. And as we examine the recipients and then the greeting, I want to share with you four key statements about God's people. The first key statement is this. God's people gather in local congregations called churches. God's people gather in local congregations called churches. Notice with me the recipients here in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church. To the church. The word church is translated from the Greek word ekklesia. And ekklesia was a gathering of people. It was an assembly. There were all sorts of gatherings or assemblies. This, this word wasn't necessarily a Christian word. Uh, it could be used to refer to all, all kinds of gatherings and assemblies of people. Well, Paul here was assuming that the Christians in Thessalonica were gathering together, and thus he could write a letter to the gathering of Christians. Now, sometimes the word church is used in the Bible to refer to all of God's people, past, present, and future. However, in many other places, including here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, the word church is referring to a local gathering of believers. Here, Paul is not writing to the church in Ephesus. He's not writing to the church in Philippi or the church at Colossae. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica, the church of the Thessalonians. And he calls them an ecclesia, a gathering, an assembly. Christian, God's plan for you is that you would not only have a relationship with him, but that you would also live in close relationships with fellow Christians, gathering together with those Christians who live nearby. And there's no category in God's word for an isolated Christian unless that Christian is the only Christian in that geographic location. If there is more than one Christian, those Christians are to be gathering together. If you are neglecting gathering with God's people, then you are outside of God's plan for your life as a Christian. God has called Christians to belong to the church and the church is a gathering by definition. Now, one day, one day we're going to gather with all of God's people in heaven. But until then, we are to gather in local congregations as a temporary, visible expression of God gathering his people to worship him and to point forward to that day when we, along with all of God's people, are gathered together worshiping God for all of eternity. And this is why I want to keep reminding you that 
this unique time of us not gathering together because of of COVID-19, because of the virus, um, this should be viewed as an exception, a very rare exception to the norm. We must be on guard during this time. We must be on guard against the temptation to make this the norm. Sitting in your living room watching a sermon can never replace the physical gathering of the body of Christ. If we are physically able, we are to be gathering together. My prayer is that this temporary separation from one another would grow within us an even deeper longing to be even more committed to gathering together once this temporary restriction is lifted. But this gathering of believers in Thessalonica is not simply a a similar group of people, a group of people that have the same likes and interests. In fact, if we go back to Acts chapter 17, we find that a variety of people are saved in Thessalonica. Jews were saved. Greeks were saved. It even specifically tells us that some of the women there were saved. And so we, we know that there were Jews and Gentiles. There were men and women here in this church. And yet Paul writes one letter to the church. He doesn't write one letter to the Jewish church and one letter to the Greek church. He doesn't write one letter to the church of men and one letter to the church of women. Uh, He doesn't write one letter to to the church of young people and another letter to the church of old people. He doesn't write one letter to the wealthy Thessalonians who are believers and another letter to the poor Thessalonians who are believers. He writes one church. Writes to to the one church. Church of the Thessalonians, this one church containing males and females of various ages and in various income brackets with various ethnic backgrounds. The ecclesia here was made up of diverse people, but they shared one thing in common. They shared at least one thing in common, one thing that brought them together. What was this one thing that would bring this diverse group of people together? Was it a shared hobby? Was it a shared political view? Was it a shared taste or interest? No. What brought them together into this gathering was much deeper. What brought them together had ultimate significance. The the one thing that united these diverse people into one gathering was the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus. Paul used this word gospel five times in chapters one and two of first Thessalonians. The, The word gospel simply means good news. And, and, and to give a simple explanation of what this gospel is, what is this good news? It is the, the good news that sinners can be saved from their sin through faith in Jesus who died on the cross, taking the punishment for their sin and rose up from the dead, giving eternal life to all who believe in him. That's the good news of the gospel. And it was this gospel message which brought these diverse Fam, uh, families and people, the, these diverse uh, uh, individuals in this city of Thessalonica brought them into one gathering, into one body, into one family, into one church. And it is the truths of this gospel message upon which Paul centers the rest of the opening of his letter. And so the first key statement that we've seen here about God's people was focused on God's people gathering together. Now, the next three statements I want to share with you about God's people are going to focus on what binds these people together. And that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So statement number two that I want to share with you is this. God's people share a right relationship with God. God's people share a right relationship with God. Let's think about this right relationship by noticing a couple of things. First, they believe the simple and yet profound truth that there is only one God. 
Now, if, if, we, um, if we, as most of us, have grown up monotheists, it's easy for us to, to read this and, and not take note of the significance uh, of this. We can take that for granted. But many of these Thessalonian believers grew up as polytheists. A monotheist believes that there's only one God. A polytheist believes that there's many, many gods. And, and many of these believers here in the church at Thessalonica grew up as polytheists. They believed in the Greek gods and goddesses. But notice verse 9. Paul praises them in verse 9 for, for turning from idols to serve the living and true God. A right relationship with God means believing that there is only one God who is revealed to us generally in the world he created and specially through his word written down, which is the Bible, and through the word made flesh, which is his son, Jesus. But it's not enough just to believe that God is the one true God. So second, we need to notice how God is described here. God is called in verse one, father, father, the bad news for all of us is that we are sinners and our sin separates us from God. The only kind of relationship that, that we should have with God, that we should be allowed to have with God is a broken one. The only relationship we should be allowed to have is a relationship where he, the righteous judge, punishes us for our sin. A relationship where he, the almighty king, kicks us out of his kingdom with no chance for reentry. A relationship where he, the eternal God, casts us into hell forever. And that's the bad news, but that's not what we see here. That's not the relationship we see here. Here we have good news. Notice that Paul says that they, the church, the gathered people, are in God the Father. Now, he doesn't say God our Father, but we know that is implied here for at least two reasons. One, because that's how... He phrases it just about every other time in his writings. You can even go to the uh, opening uh, verse of 2 Thessalonians and see there the phrase God our Father instead of the phrase God the Father. But we also see that he is referring to God not only as the Father but as our Father because his calling God Father is in reference to the next phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the father of Jesus, and therefore, if we are in Jesus, which the church is in Jesus, then God is our father as well. Church, one of the things that unites us as God's people and then sets us apart from the rest of the world is our shared relationship with God. It's a relationship that we share with Jesus. Like Jesus, we get to call God father. God fixes the broken relationship we have with him. He mends it. And he reconciles us to himself. We are like the lost son in one of Jesus' parables who rebelled against his father. And, and he knew that he only deserved to call his father master. But God is like the father of the lost son who chooses out of his great love to call us not slave, but son. He welcomes us back to live as his children with all the privileges afforded to the offspring of the king. That is gospel news to you, to me, to the Thessalonians, to the world. But how? How can God do that? How can God put us back into a right relationship with him? The answer lies in the next thing that we share as a church. Statement number three is this. God's people share a right belief about Jesus. God's people share a right belief about Jesus. Not only is the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, but they are equally in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This short phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals an essential belief shared by all those who belong to this church. They believe that Jesus is, there's really three beliefs here, the incarnate God who is the promised deliverer and the reigning king. So let's take these three beliefs one at a time. First, they believe that Jesus is the incarnate God. The incarnate God. This word that I'm using, incarnate, it it speaks of the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh. Paul refers to the Lord and Christ with his human name, Jesus, and yet he still calls him Lord, which is a title that belongs only to God. You catch that? Jesus is the name given to the Son of God when he's born as a human. Jesus is his human name. But Paul combines that human name with the title of Lord. Jesus, the human, is God. Even the way Paul writes this puts Jesus on an equal level with God the Father. He he says they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're equally in both, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two times in this letter, here and in chapter 3, verse 11, and then once in 2 Thessalonians, there in chapter 2, verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians, and then in other places in Paul's writings, he speaks of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in equal terms. Thessalonian believers are equally in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ because to have life in one is to have life in the other. Jesus is fully God in human form. If you don't believe this, you don't belong to the people of God. The second, we see that they believe that Jesus is the promised deliverer. They believe that Jesus is the promised deliverer. We see this with the word Christ. Now, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised to send a man born of woman who would destroy the serpent. And then for centuries on, God continued to make promise after promise after promise that he would send this deliverer, this one who would rescue his people. Now, in the Hebrew, this coming deliverer was known as the Messiah, which means the anointed one or the the long-awaited one. And in the Greek translation of that Hebrew word Messiah is the Greek word Christos. In English, it's Christ. So here's what's happening. These Thessalonians, by believing that Jesus is the Christ, but were believing that this Jesus of Nazareth born of a virgin, nailed to a Roman cross, and risen from the dead, was the promised deliverer sent from God. That's what they believed about this Jesus. He wasn't just just another teacher. He wasn't just another prophet. He was the one that God had promised to send to rescue his people from their sin. We can clearly see that this is what Paul preached to them and what they believed if we go again back to Acts chapter 17. And there we find these words beginning in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. Jesus is the Christ. There is no one else. And if you don't believe this, you don't belong to the people of God. The third, their belief about Jesus. Third, we see that they believe that Jesus is the reigning king. They believe that Jesus is the reigning king. We see this in Paul's designation of Jesus as Lord. 
Not only does that title point to Jesus as being God, but it also helps us understand the place that they gave Jesus in their lives. They believed that Jesus was their Lord. They believed Jesus was reigning over their lives as king. They believed that they answered ultimately to Jesus. This was huge. This was a life-transforming belief. Because the motto of the day in the Roman world was Caesar is Lord. And so to say Jesus is Lord was viewed as an act of treason. In fact, we can look back again at Acts chapter 17 and see that this claim that Jesus is Lord is exactly what caused the ruckus in Thessalonica, which eventually led to Paul and Silas having to flee. The Jews in Thessalonica dragged some of the believers, um, including a, a man named Jason, before the city officials. And this is what they shouted. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They didn't just believe that Jesus was the Christ, that is the one who had come to save them. They also believed that Jesus was the one who ruled over them. Jesus wasn't just their Savior, Jesus was their Lord. They didn't just turn to Jesus to save them, but then continue living their lives however they wanted to live. No, they turned to Jesus to live for Him, to follow Him, and to obey Him. If you don't believe that Jesus is Lord that he has the right to tell you how to live your life, and you don't belong to the people of God. This church believed that Jesus was the incarnate God, that he was the promised deliverer, and that he was the reigning king. And this is how they had a right relationship with God, through Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's how we as the church today have a right relationship with God. It's through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. This is gospel news. It's good news. To the Thessalonians, to us today, to the whole world. God's people share a right belief about Jesus. But finally, when you have a right relationship with God through believing the right thing about Jesus, you can say that you have experienced true salvation. You can say that you have experienced true salvation. And this, is, this is our fourth statement. And I want, I want to share with you today. The fourth statement is this. God's people share a right experience of salvation. God's people share a right experience of salvation. We move right into the third part of the opening, which is the greeting. Remember uh, those parts of the, of the opening? We had the, 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 who, who, who the letter is written from. And then we have who the letter is written to. And then we have a greeting. And then later we have the, the thanks. This is the third part of the opening. It's short. But pay attention. It's profound. Paul says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Now, this was somewhat of typical standard greeting. However, Paul uses a different form of the word grace. You see, the gospel changes everything. Even the greeting to a letter. He changed this this word grace to a different form. Instead of the form of the word that simply meant greetings, he used the form of the word that meant that the Thessalonians were recipients of unmerited favor. That's what the word grace means. Unmerited favor. If you have been shown grace, you are a recipient 
a favor that you didn't deserve. Their status as the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ was not a result of their own work. It was a gift from God. They didn't earn it. God gave it to them. It was God's work of providing His Son as a substitute sacrifice that led to their reconciliation with God. It was God's work that they were in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. If you think that you belong to God because of something you have done, you are very mistaken. If you think that you are saved from your sins because of something you have done, you are very mistaken. Paul said it this way to the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The right experience of salvation is an experience of grace, an experience of receiving what you don't deserve, which then leads to the experience of everlasting peace. You see, I can have peace that I belong to God even though I have sinned because God has provided salvation as a gift, not as something that I have to earn. I can have peace that my salvation is secure because God, not me, has secured it. I can have peace in troubled times because the God who has given me salvation cannot be shaken. I can have peace when I face death because God has sent His Son to die in my place and to rise from the dead so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I experience peace because God has shown me grace. Grace to you and peace. The order there is important. And this experience of grace and peace, it's not a one-time thing. It's not something that just happened to me Way back when, when I first trusted in Jesus? No. This is an ongoing peace in my life. God's grace continually pours over me, continually sustaining the peace through the highs and the lows of life. And for many of you, you know it's true of you as well. You know what it's like to experience God's grace. And as a result, to experience the peace that comes with knowing that God has provided for you a free and complete salvation. If you've not experienced salvation founded upon only the grace of God leading to peace with God, then whatever you've experienced, it's not salvation. You don't belong to the people of God. Grace leading to peace is gospel news. God's people share a right experience of salvation. So where does that leave us? Where does this leave us? I think it leaves us here. The right relationship with God, the right belief in Jesus, the right experience of salvation, those things that we've looked at here in verse 1, those things are the gospel which binds together the diverse people of God into local gatherings of Christians called churches, where together we grow in the gospel and together we take the gospel to those who have yet to believe. Now, let me close by asking you some questions. 
Do you belong to the people of God? Do you belong to the people of God? That's an important question. How do you know that you belong to the people of God if you say that you do? Do you belong to the church? Are you gathering regularly with God's people or are you thinking that you can just be an isolated Christian? Now, to be clear, gathering with a church does not save you. But clearly from God's word, those who have been saved by God's grace will gather with the church. Speaking of being saved by grace, do you have a right relationship with God? What do I mean by that? Is God your father or is he some distant God or power that you think just orders you around like a like a slave or a servant? What about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is fully God and is your savior and Lord? Or do you believe that Jesus is something less than God and therefore insufficient to save you and undeserving of? Of your obedience. Do you have a right experience of salvation? Do you have a right experience of salvation? Have you experienced a free gift of salvation leading to peace? Or are you trying to work for your salvation, which leads to frustration and fear? You see, there's good news. Even if you don't belong to the people of God today, you can. You can. This good news is good news for everyone in the world. Today, you can receive salvation by trusting that Jesus is the Christ sent from God. To rescue people from their sin. That he does this through his death and resurrection. That when he died, he took your place on the cross. And when he rose, he was rising to conquer death. So that all who are in him could live forever. That the grave would not be the end. Confess that Jesus is your Lord. That you're going to follow him by his grace. You cry out to God for that free gift of salvation. You don't try to work for it. You don't try to earn it. You go to God and you say, God, I confess that I am a sinner. And I deserve to to have a broken relationship with you forever. But God, I believe the truth about Jesus. That He is the Lord. He is King. He is Jesus. He's, he's human, but, but He was God at the same time. And I believe that He is the Christ. And God, I ask that You, out of Your love for me that I don't deserve, that You forgive me because of what Jesus did. I commit my life to You. Today, You can place Your faith in Jesus and be rescued from Your sin. Once you do that, once you do that, you should commit to gathering with a local body of believers, gathering with the church. 
Let me ask you one final question. If Paul wrote a letter today and he addressed it to the church, would you be included as one of the recipients? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are amazing and wonderful. Father, You are so high above us. And yet, Father, You have stooped down and entered our world through the person of Jesus. And You have provided a way for us to be rescued from our sin. For the relationship between You and us to be broken. That was broken to be, to be healed, to be mended. And Father, then You gather us together having saved us by Your grace and given us the eternal peace, You gather us together in Your, in your church. And to Your church universal, but also into local congregations of believers. So Father, if there's someone who today has not trusted in Jesus Christ, they, haven't, they don't have this shared relationship with, with You as Father. They don't have this shared belief about who Jesus really is. They don't have this shared experience of of receiving this grace from You that leads to peace. Father, I pray that today they would trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They would turn to Him. And by turning to Him, they would be turning to You. And Father, that You would save them from their sin by the power of Your Holy Spirit working in their heart. Father, for those who have trusted in Christ. Father, I pray that You would grow not only our love for the Gospel, but also our love for the church. Father, grow us in our commitment to gather with the body of Christ. Father, it's not, it's not optional for believers. May it not be optional in our lives. May we be committed to the church, to the gathering to the people who are in You as our Father. And in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it is in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.